Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Get Clean Podcast. I'm your host, Khalil Sherrod, and this is episode nine. In this episode, I am interviewing Michael Fahey, the director and producer of the infamous West Side versus the World documentary. This is probably one of my favorite podcasts so far. Michael not only uh, directed and produced West Side film, but now he's also a volunteer uh, strength conditioning coach for a football team down in Tallahassee, Florida. So he has actually personal experience coaching as well as film, and he does a little bit of lifting himself. So all around a lot of information. Once again, I got a lot of notes, so I hope you enjoy. Let's get clean. Hey. Hey, Michael, what's up? Not much. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Well, it's an honor having you on, man. Finally talking to you, not face-to-face, but at least over the phone. You know, I've been on, like, your live videos and stuff before, making mm-hmm. comments or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> it's great finally getting uh, as close as we can, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is... Not as close as everyone's getting right now. <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, just start off, tell us everybody about yourself, where you're from, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, okay. Spent almost a decade in LA, a couple of years in Orlando. Um, traveled about making uh, documentaries and doing some stuff for uh, reality and travel TV. Uh, travel mm. called Food Network, e- okay, yeah. ESPN, a couple of years in NFL Network, um, and I guess most people know me for West Side versus the World. So, All right? The- How did what? Do, what do you like? What projects did you work on on the Food Network and ESPN? Um, for Food Network, I just did a few episodes of different things. Um, I think Master Chef. Okay. That was on food. It's hard to remember what stuff was on what channels exactly, because most of those jobs would only be a few days. So it sounds like I've done oh. a million things, but that's kind of the the nature of working in media. You've and what what would you do? Like just behind the camera? Like, what, what would you do? Um, I did a lot of different stuff. Um, coming from coming from Tallahassee, and uh, I got my start in media, like making beats and recording rappers and eventually transitioned to uh, taking photos and shooting music videos. So I was like a one man band. Um, And then when I got out to LA where people specialized a little more, I didn't really have a specialty. I was kind of Mm -hmm. uh, my, my approach to media was very conjugate. So I, I kind of did everything. have a work history that kind of reflects that. So camera work, editing for NFL network, um, producing for travel channel. Um, and nowadays mostly I shoot a lot of my stuff. I edit most of my stuff. Um, but most of my jobs these days are more on the, uh, sort of producing and packaging side. Hmm. So, I kind of pitch projects and find the funding for them. And often I can find the funding for them because I do a lot of the grunt work myself. 
Ah, uh, okay. So yeah. they're like, yeah, I'd... we'll give you some money since you're going to do all that legwork. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't know that it's me doing all the legwork. I just don't pay myself well, so. Right. <laughs> um, what sports did you play growing up? Um, when I was real young, I played pretty much everything. Um, lots of soccer, lots of basketball, lots of football. I played baseball for a while. I hated baseball. <laughs> Why? Um, I used to purposefully strike out because <laughs> I, I would just like swing for a home run, like first at you know, first pitch. And then in my head, it's like, well, if I get up like four times and I strike out all four. I can shorten this whole game by an inning. So <laughs> it was really messed up because my dad was the coach. So it was Dang. eventually I had a talk and said, like, why don't we spend this time on another sport that I like? Um, <clears throat> I'd, I'd rather double up on, on something like basketball or train for football. So eventually we took up track. Um, I threw shot put and discus mostly. Um, I was decent at those. Um, I had I had the opportunity to walk on um, at FSU for track. Uh, didn't end up taking it. Because I decided to try and move film school instead. I also had some small offers for football. Uh, football was more my primary sport. When did you first get introduced to Westside? Um, so my, my history with, with Westside goes way, way back. Um, so my dad is basically my dad's nuts and, um, he's, uh, he's in his sixties now, but he was always fanatical about training and, um, that was his, that was his big hobby. So he spent all his time and money, um, learning about training and training himself. He never did a powerlifting meet, um, but he did play semi-pro football until he was like 37. Hmm. Um, and he was a stockbroker. That was how he made money. So um, it wasn't interesting. It wasn't because he could pay the bills or anything. Football wasn't, it wasn't a meal ticket, like pipe dream kind of thing. It was just like, they'll still let me hit people. Cool. Let me suit up. I don't care. If it's <laughs> Just, you know, it was fun for him. So he uh, was always really big into lifting. Um, he had a sort of congenital back issue that in all likelihood I also have. Um, but uh, because of that, he always was very mindful of his back. And then one day he read about the reverse hyper. And so sight unseen, this is back in probably like 94, 95. Hmm. Uh, so sight unseen, he, he heard about it. He tracked down how you had to get it at that time. There's no, you know, Westside didn't have a website or anything. So he, uh, got himself, I believe a subscription to powerlifting USA specifically because someone told him that's how you had to order reverse hyper was through the ads in powerlifting USA. <laughs> so he got a year long subscription so that he could cut out, the uh, ad in the back of the magazine. And so we got a reverse hyper shortly thereafter. It showed up. He put it together. Like, Holy shit. That's what I ordered. 
Um, it came with a little tape. The tape had a very nasally uh, sort of troll <laughs> man who, who gave these instructions, and he thought that's strange, and he threw the tape away, and now I wish that he hadn't because um, no one has those tapes anymore. But, uh, yeah, he he was using the reverse hyper. Um, it made his back feel good. And then he still had all these epi- or issues that would come in. And so he started reading them. And, you know, most of the articles back then were all, you know, it was like, hey, what's Eddie Cohn doing this week? And it's, oh, he's doing the same linear periodization. What's, you know, Captain Kirk doing this week? Oh, he's doing a slightly different linear periodization. And then Louie would have these articles and they would be, you know, he was just like talking about things in a completely different manner than everyone else. So my dad started really getting into Louie's articles. Louie published his phone number at the end of all of his articles back then. So my dad started calling him. And then, uh, like I said, I did track and field. So I qualified for nationals. Nationals was in Cleveland, Ohio. This was 1999. I was 12. And uh, my dad said, hey, I'll, I'll chaperone the meet. And we got on the team bus. We drove up to Cleveland. And then my dad said, you know, well, you're not throwing until the last day of the meet. So hmm. it's like eight or nine days long. So he called up Louie and he said, hey, we're going to go visit this gym. And this is when it was on the dimmerest location, the one in the movie that they say looks like the strip club and with the blackout <laughs> window. It's kind of one of the this is the sort of most iconic place that Westside exists, existed in. And um, we showed up and I'm 12 and my dad says, we're going to a gym and we drive for two hours. And I think we're going to show up to like a Gold's and nope. It's completely different. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I got introduced to to Louie and Dave Tate and Chuck Vogelpool, who didn't say anything to me. He just growled at me. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. Literally, he just like made a, a like low growl. Um, he seemed annoyed that there was a child in the gym that day. <laughs> um, and uh, they let my dad work out with them, and they, uh, I mean, they just destroyed him. Um, but from there, my dad got in touch. He pulled Louie to the side and asked him if he'd ever considered doing a seminar down in Florida. And Louie, of course, said, nope. <laughs> he, you know, he <laughs> bothered to travel. So, uh, but Dave Tate overheard, and Dave Tate said, well, you know, well, I'd I'd love to come down to Florida. And my dad said, cool, you know. And so they uh, put together that the following summer, Dave Tate came down and did a seminar at my dad's gym, which was our garage. My dad didn't ah, train. Wow. He trained a couple like sort of other stockbrokers and lawyers and sort of middle-aged people who just wanted to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. get a small workout in and bullshit around with him. Um. But yeah, Dave Tate thought that he was going to like a very hardcore powerlifting gym. What did he say when he showed up? Yeah, it, well, he he said that like uh, my dad picked him up from the airport, and they didn't like really know each other at the time. And he was Dave, I think, was staying with us. And so my dad picks him up from Tallahassee's airport, which is very small, and we lived on the complete opposite side of town, just south of Georgia. 
Um, so at the time it was way out in the woods, the city's developed and grown since, but, um, Dave said like, you know, they drove through the city then they start driving through the country and my dad's just talking and he's like, you know, wow, he's real excited. And, um, then without, you know, really saying anything, he pulls up into this, uh, long half paved driveway (laughs) my parents bought this big house in the eighties and never finished the driveway. (laughs) You're out in the woods. It's just surrounded by like thick, dense forest. And there's this, you know, the house looked like a big old castle, but the driveway is not finished. And, uh, they pull up and my dad just doesn't skip a beat. He's talking, he gets out, he walks into the house without really explaining what's going on. Um, he had asked Dave, at some point in the car, do you want to see the gym? Dave said, sure. Dave thought, okay, maybe he's stopping to grab something on the way to the gym. My dad keeps talking. He goes all the way inside. He comes back out, and Dave's still waiting in the car. And he says, you know, you coming in? Or what's, what's going on? You stay all night? <laughs> Dave uh, realizes that he might have been in trouble. And uh, he gets out, and he walks in, and I think I had friends over and we're playing PlayStation and my sister's got like a girl scout troop over and they're doing like arts and crafts. There's a bunny and a Guinea pig and we have all these animals and birds. And uh, my dad just keeps going. Like nothing is strange to him because he's a weirdo. And uh, he walks Dave through the whole house and then out into the garage and the garage was just stacked with equipment. Um, I don't know if the first year we had one, but by at least the next year, we had a monolift. Eventually, we had two monoliths. We had the reverse hyper. We had a belt squat. We had one cafe and glute machine. Then we had two. You know, any anything Did you could buy. Did he have the inverse curl yet? No. No, he still doesn't have the inverse curl. That was, yeah, that was. No, no, no. I'm saying, did Louis come out with the inverse curl? No, no, no. No, that was that was much later. I think the inverse curl didn't come out until um, maybe around like 2011 or 12. Right, because I'd look at the DVDs. That's not in there. That's yeah, in, and he definitely would have been showing that off. I know that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so. so you, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, so just to sort of make it short, they had this seminar. Dave was worried no one would show, and. Uh, I think they had probably like a dozen people who showed up and they wow. sat in this tiny two car garage with no AC to listen to Dave Tate for two days. And they ate at barbecue places uh, for their meals in between. And it went well enough that Dave said, you know, why don't we do this again next year? And the following year oh, he wow. came back, did another seminar. And uh, my dad just became further and further sort of invested in West Side you know, kind of as a, like a fan. So as I got older and I started playing football, which I was not good at at first, um, my freshman year, I was terrible. Couldn't touch the field. I played four plays my whole freshman year and they were all in a freshman only scrimmage. And it was because someone's helmet broke and I just ran out on the field. I realized like, (laughs) it's like third quarter. It was a makeup game for September 11th. So I was like, this is like my last chance to see some action 
for whatever reason, the coach won't play me. So I ran out, <laughs> uh, got four plays before they could figure out like this kid's equipment situation to get me off the field. And, uh, <laughs> after that, I told my dad, you know, like, I want to get serious about lifting and everything. And he asked the coaches, could he train me? And they said, yeah, he's terrible. We don't care what you do with him. And <laughs> I came back six months later and they literally didn't recognize me. And from my sophomore year on, I was a two-way starter on varsity and, um, they were suddenly very interested in getting me to train with the rest of the team. And, uh, of course my dad would say to them, well, what are you having the, the team do? And right. how do they train? What methods do you use? Do you use accommodating resistance? What do you know about box squats? Uh, you know, what, what kind of periodization do you use? And they, they were just like, listen, we just do like three sets of five on stuff. <laughs> and, uh, right. yeah. So every day I would come home and eventually I had a, a crew of maybe like four or five guys from my team who all trained with me. Um, very quickly, we were the strongest kids on the team. Um, my training partner ended up going to Clemson and, uh, yeah, the whole time, every day I'd come home and my dad would have like an article from Powerlifting USA or a tape from Westside and we'd watch that and eat uh, bagel bites and Tostino's pizza pockets and uh, then we'd go hit the backyard and drag the sled as a warm-up or do reverse hypers and then get into our max effort and dynamic effort and uh, a couple times my coaches uh made reference to child services and stuff because they thought my dad was like torturing me and i was like no we're just training like with some direction and intelligence and science and then they realized that i was like into it and then they were afraid to talk to me about it (laughs) Uh, so yeah so then like 10 years later my dad calls me up and says you know like you really need to make a documentary on west side and i was like well that would be cool but I don't think that's something that they would ever do. Right. And they set me up with on a phone call with Louie and Louie told me, yeah, that wouldn't be anything that we'd ever do. <laughs> and, and it took months and months of me and Louie having really long conversations until he finally said, okay. And, uh, yeah. In the meantime, what did you say to come internet had exploded. Um, I I don't think that there was any one thing. I think it was a combination of like Louis, Louis kind of is um, a bit of a cynic and a pessimist when it comes to people. And um, I I don't think that he'd be upset with me saying that. Um, But so he, you know, like he'd say things like, it'll get hard. You'll quit. I'll never hear from you again. (laughs) And, but simultaneously, he would tell me to give him a call in a few weeks. So he, you know, our very first conversation, he called me, my dad had called him and like pitched the idea to him and asked if he would take a phone call with me. Then my dad called me and said, Hey, congrats. You have a meeting with Louie. Um, you know, like I was working on a Bobby Bowden documentary at the time and you know, like my plate was full. So I didn't. I was like, yeah, that'd be cool to do a West Side thing, but I don't need it. I don't really care. And uh, 
then my dad calls me and says, you know, you've got a meeting tomorrow with Louie. And um, so sure enough, Louie calls me at like 6 a.m. Because I was in oh, California. Wow. So it was nine o'clock his time. And of course, my dad didn't tell me until the night before. So I didn't really sleep. I was like, great. I got to like prep for this meeting with like a guy who's notoriously like intimidating and intense and terrifying about telling his like life story, I guess. And um, so I did all the research I could and I tried to remember everything that I knew and picked up the phone. He said, you know, this is Louis Simmons. And I said, Hey, Louis, uh, he said, so I heard you want to make a movie about me. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, and he just goes, well, let me stop you. No. (laughs) So it was literally 12 (laughs) seconds in and he had told me no. And I was just like, okay, well, that's not going to work. But he kept talking to me. And then he asked me about, you know, what sports I played and what my experience was. And um, at the end of the phone call, he said no again. He said no about every three or four minutes. Um, I wasn't even asking at that point. He was just letting me know, like, hey, even though I'm still talking to you, no. Um, And so he finally said, well, no, but I'm going to send you some stuff and I want you to look at it. Um, and a few days later, I got a giant box delivered to my house, um, like a priority shipment. Uh, so I was like, Ooh, he had to direct someone special to send this to me. And like, he, he paid a pretty penny to send me a box full of DVDs and books and a bunch of shirts. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well that no wasn't a no. Right. You don't just do this and then expect to never hear from a guy again. So I read through everything twice. I watched every DVD twice. And again, this is how I had trained. I mean, I didn't grow up like with any Western periodization or linear background. All I knew was conjugate from when I was young. Right. Right. So that's, that was my only understanding of strength training. And I had been to West side. I had met Louie. I had you know, I had met Dave and I had met Chuck and I had met all these people. And, uh, you know, in my house, it was, they were like, it was like the bulls, the bears and West side. Those were our teams. So I had just this weird background and, um, called Louie a few weeks later and he said no again, every few minutes. And we talked for an hour and I said, you know, well, give me a call in a couple of weeks. So I called him back a couple of weeks later and this just kept going for about three months. And every time we talked, uh, I had started training again. I hadn't trained basically for 10 years. Wow. When I stopped playing football, I stopped having really a reason to train. And uh, so I started, you know, I'd be talking to him about my training and, you know, the things that I could remember from my adolescence piecing together and asking him, you know, well, how do y'all do board press? And how do y'all, you know, we had, I was realizing that some of the things that we did when I was younger were sort of like misinterpretations that my dad had, had come Uh, up with. And I realized that's how a lot of West side kind of evolved was people listening to Louie trying to do what he said. And sometimes they'd screw up and that screw up would end up, you know, becoming an advancement 
so just to, you know, like just as evolution works on a, you know, cellular level where sometimes the, uh, sometimes the errors in duplication create, you know, genetic advantages. Um, I noticed throughout the process of making the movie and talking to Louie about how he came up with a lot of stuff that a lot of his ideas weren't, you know, they were never his ideas. They were people trying to put his ideas into play and just accidentally stumbling on a manner that was, you know, better than what he was doing. Then they'd call him and say like, Hey, am I doing this right? And he'd, you know, ask, well, what are you doing? What kind of results are you getting? And sometimes people were calling him and going like, Hey, I'm doing this. It seems to be working, but I don't, I don't understand it. Right. You know, that's how they got yeah. chains, bands, right. all these other yeah, things. I mean, he told, I remember hearing him say that, you know, this is, you know, everybody's test dummies and we learn just from trying this out, see if it works. And if it, if it does, we keep it. If it doesn't, we throw it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he, it, what, really I think made Louie like so great was that he you know in in school and psychology and life and just generally they talk about like the sort of different levels of of uh, learning you know there's the people who learn from experience there's people who learn from uh, repetition and contemplation and sort of the highest level of learning is when you learn from other people's mistakes. Right. You know, when you don't have to go through a process to learn from it, you can recognize the outcome from someone else going through the process. And I think that's always been what Louis has been, you know, really great at, especially as he got older when he couldn't, you know, quite put his body through the same process. Right. He had to, he, you know, had to, in order to get anywhere, had to learn how to learn from everyone else's experiences. Um, so now I'm looking back and you're saying how, like when he told you, no, you're like, all right. And he kind of like, felt like you already kind of knew that. What made you ultimately want to actually do the documentary? Was it from talking with him or all the books he sent you? Like what actually made you like, Oh, now I really, really want to do it. Not just like, it would be a good bonus. Um, all along, people were telling me, you know, like, yeah, it'd be great to do a documentary on Louie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I talked to Chris Bell a few times and, you know, Chris had shot with Louie for Bigger, Stronger, Faster. He had uh, he had gotten as close as anyone else had. And right. he I have the type of mind or personality or or whatever it is i like to solve problems and i like to solve problems from other people i'm not really great at like necessarily finding problems or finding inspiration or anything on my own but if you tell me if you know if you tell me a problem or if someone else gives me some sort of constraint i immediately go to well how would you overcome this and so people just kept telling me all the issues with, with doing something with Louis. And in my head, I just, you know, was, it wasn't that I wanted to solve them. It was just that I immediately was going, well, that's not, you know, 
ultimately a completely insurmountable task. You would just have to do X or you would just have to do Y or, you know, like you would just have to do things. You'd have to modify your process. And so as everyone was trying to convince me not to do it, they just were making me want to do it more and more. (laughs) And then comes the like ego and pride thing of like, well, if I could do this after (laughs) everyone else is saying how impossible (laughs) it is, you know, that would really be something. And it means that like, you know, most people that you make documentaries on, they want to be in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's always, uh, there's, I've seen this happen with other documentaries and other people that I've worked with and stuff where they make a documentary. It does a little bit of something for them or for their business or for their, it does something for their ego, something for their fame, their visibility. And then when that documentary kind of passes, they want another one. It becomes like a drug. And suddenly they're just sort of like pimping themselves out (laughs) sort of on this you know like biannual basis or something where like every couple years like oh here's that other you know here's another thing from them yeah yeah and And a lot of times right and a lot of times they're not doing anything you know they that first documentary is because they did something and then you go well all they've done since the last one was promote the (laughs) next one (laughs) you know like what what's this new one documenting and the more I talk to Louie, the more I realize, like, no, if someone ever does a documentary on this guy, it's going to be like the last and only. Right. Um, so that kind of idea of like having something that would be special and exclusive also made me want to do it. And then just on top of it, like I knew I knew so much of his story from what I had heard from my dad and from Dave Tate over the years and you know, like I knew, I knew he had broken his back multiple times. I had heard the stories of him, you know, like, uh, I had heard the stories of him, you know, missing a weight and then going home and loading it up in his basement and, you know, doing it or doing, you know, what would eventually sort of morph into dimmel deadlifts where he just decided I'm not going to miss a certain weight anymore and so he starts doing these progressive sets of 20 mm-hmm. in deadlifts um or the stories about you know there was a time when there's all these stories that i knew that aren't even in the movie you know there was a time when louis had long hair and then he cut his really? hair <laughs> yeah he shaved his head i was gonna ask uh, like, what some of the things that didn't make the final edits that are so important or you um, found interesting yeah Long yeah, hair. I mean, that's, there's that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he had long hair and then he shaved his head and there was some goal that like he wasn't going to let himself grow hair until he hit this goal. <laughs> and then it took him like so long that it, uh, he just kept, you know, he eventually it was almost like he forgot the goal and he just kept shaking his head. Um, there's actually there's a picture in the movie. I think just one picture is all I could find where he had hair and no one, like no one even recognizes that it's him. Yeah. I'm like, I don't remember that. I just watched it for the fourth time the other day. I don't know. I don't remember it. (laughs) Yeah. It probably, it probably will not register to you that it's even him. Um, But, uh, 
yeah, just a million things. One of my, one of the most like sort of profound things to me, it wasn't really even about Louie. It was about AJ Roberts. Um, AJ Roberts trained with Brent Mikesell, who was one of the first guys to go over 1100 pounds. And he was trying to squat 1200. And this is mm-hmm. in the, you know, early 2000s. He was trying to squat 1200. And meanwhile, AJ was this British basketball player. I didn't know AJ who, played basketball. That's oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So AJ was this tiny little basketball player who uh, was just starting to squat like 405 in gear. Oh, and he wow. was training out in like the Seattle area, I want to say, out in Washington somewhere. He was training with Brent Mikesell, who was one of the biggest squatters in the world at the time. And Brent was trying to be the first guy to 1200. And Brent like lived and died to get to 1200. That was all that he was about. And he got close, but he never hit it. And eventually he started having you know, severe life-threatening health problems and his, his health ultimately cut his, his, you know, quest for 1200 short. And AJ watched this guy, you know, just build up this, this aura about that number, 1200 pounds, 1200 pounds. And AJ was squatting 800 pounds less (laughs) <laughs> but that's all, you know, he's a young kid and this number has just been mythologized to him. 1,200 pounds. This is the true mark of strength, 1,200 pounds. And then AJ gets to West Side and his numbers skyrocket. And, you know, he's suddenly he's the, the you know, the really the beast of the morning crew. And he's at the time, he's kind of Louis' golden child of that, that era. Um. And he becomes this very big figure within the gym and he squats. Uh, He finally one day squats 1200 pounds in a meet. And he says when he came up and realized (laughs) that he was going to get it, bar wasn't even in the rack yet. But the moment he knew that he was going to get it, he knew that he had nothing left in the sport. Oh, Wow. He had no more desire. He had, he had conquered that thing that hit the mark that had always been. This is strong. This is strong. This is, you know, this is what it's all about. He gets it. And immediately there's nowhere else to go. Hmm. And then he's left with, you know, that, that emptiness and, you know, directionlessness that so many lifters at West side have hit. And most of the guys who have hit that, you can find something within their story about, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the mystic idea of some number, some number that would give you closure. Right. And it's, doesn't. it's great to get there, but the moment you get there, you know, like so many guys get so wrapped up in it that they don't go any further. Mm-hmm. And then you look at a guy like Louie, who all he wanted was, you know, a world record and he got close and then he broke his back right. and he got close and there was an injury and he got close and he got close and he got close, but he never got that thing that he wanted. And so he goes on until he's 63 and, you know, can't till his body just absolutely will not let him. 
or you look at a guy like Luke Edwards, same way. It's very (laughs) close to that goal that he wants, but it's always just out of reach. And then you look at a guy like, say, Hoff, and you, you know, everyone else has numbers for Hoff, but I think what makes Hoff Hoff is that there is no real number for him. Hmm. There is no, you know, like to him, the mountain just keeps going up into the clouds. And they go, you know, like, how high will you climb? Well, I've got to, I've got to see what's at the top, you know, rather than kind of creating a top for himself, he just keeps going, you know, how high can I go? Hmm. Um, and you see that a lot, like growing up, I saw that with the kids that I played football with. Cause again, I didn't powerlifting was not my sport. Um, but in football, you know, everyone wanted to go D1 and you saw a bunch of players that they get that D1 scholarship and they just completely fall apart because D1 was the goal. It wasn't, you know, I knew other kids who I grew up around guys like Antonio Cromartie, LeGarrette Blunt, Ernie Sims. I grew up again around a, a group of guys who, you know, everyone else was saying D1. They were saying, you know, like, I want to be a 10-year NFL Pro Bowl type player. And that's where they got. But littered along the way were guys just going like, I just want the prestige of like that scholarship that will validate me. Right. What what was the hardest part of making the documentary? Mm. The hardest part is that documentaries are really really long you know the process of making them um for pretty much every documentary that i've been a part of um at least in a large manner you the rule of thumb that i see seems to be that you have about 200 hours of footage so you just think about like going through that 200 hours just to watch it back it's five weeks. That's a five-week full-time job just to see what is it that we shot. Then you start going through, you know, that 200 hours is only going to be 85, 90, maybe 95 minutes. So you're, you know, you're cutting out nearly 90% of, or no, nearly 99% of what you shot. And you're just going back and forth and um, it just becomes really hard to like sustain the emotional and and mental momentum to get through such a long, arduous process. And then with extra weird things happen like legally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I read a little (laughs) bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. You end up working with people who are not the legal person that they have claimed for years to be. And they, they don't realize that documentaries are a long multi-year thing. They're, they think they're like a get rich quick, you know, they, they don't realize like the, you know, the, the top tier of documentary filmmaking, you look at like Michael Moore, you know, like a 
just fat slovenly dude who dresses poorly <laughs> and looks like he could die at any minute. And then like Morgan Spurlock, who it, it you know, is basically the same, but like is thinner, <laughs> you know, like you just realize like, you know, documentary filmmakers are not, you know, Ken Burns, just a skinny spider of a man with a weird haircut. Like they're not, you know, they, they never cut to like the documentary filmmakers at the Oscars. You know, there's no, there's no glitz. There's no glamor. It's, it's, a, it's not, you know, it's not entourage. Um, so yeah, I ended up essentially strapped to the hip of like a con man who thought that, a documentary was a great way to like get rich quick and live the live the Hollywood life that you see on TV. And that's not what it is. Uh, what was your favorite scene from the film? Um, I get asked what was my favorite scene all the time. That's that's a really weird sort of thing to like figure out. Um, the scene that I like, one of the scenes that means like the most to me is towards the end when Hoff is sitting on the bench at Westside talking about, um, going for 3010 and where he starts to talk about, you know, it took me, uh, four years for five pounds and the importance of hitting, you know, the important, he was, he had the highest total ever. But he still, you know, Hoff is about the same age as me. Hmm. I'm, I'm like a little less than a year older than him. Uh, I had, when I first got out of college, right around the time, you know, roughly a year before Hoff uh, would, or two years before Hoff would go for 3000, I edited a movie called Forks Over Knives that ended up being one of the most watched documentaries, if not the most watched documentary in Netflix history. Um, I, I was saw tr- it, but I didn't watch it. And I'm trying to remember what it was about. Cause I knew people um, that it's about, it. uh, yeah, it's about like plant-based diet. Right. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I think somebody like Joe Rogan like, was talking about it. Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah. It's been, it's been talked about many times on Joe Rogan, but it is like the, it is the reason for all of the sort of plant-based documentaries that would come after it was sort of like the masthead for that kind of like plant-based diet, um, trend. But, uh, it was incredibly (laughs) successful, like as a, as a documentary and especially as an independent documentary. And I had edited that as a 22 year old, Oh, wow. And, you know, so like, and I didn't think that it would be anything. By the time I had stopped working on it, it hadn't come out yet. And I thought, you know, like, cool, I finished that thing. No one will ever hear about it. (laughs) It's the first thing that I've edited. I didn't really know what I was doing. So that's got to say something about the, the project as a whole, that they let me be, you know, have such a big hand in it and in shaping it and stuff. And then it ended up, being you know wildly successful maybe like a year later and you know then i worked on 
a number of things afterwards, but none of them, you know, were near that same height. Right. So I'm listening to Hoff. I'm sitting there talking to Hoff as he's starting to get emotional about like what it meant to, you know, be the guy who went 3005 and then suffer through four years of like injuries and setbacks and, you know, like trying to get back to this number to justify what that. What injuries he, did he have? Cause I never knew that. Knew what injuries you have. Um, he didn't have like any singular big injury. Um, he had a lot of problems with his hip, um, just things not firing right. Um, you know, when you start to get to like that, that level of strength, it's one of the things that like is most fascinating to me about training in general is that, you know, like, and one of the things that I think people have the biggest problem with when it comes to like conjugate training is that they don't understand time, you know, like in anything time is like time is one of the, you know, most underrated aspects of just existence. So, you know, when you're, when you're lifting the kind of weights that he was lifting, cause you got to think like other people had been massive squatters. He was a big squatter and a big bencher. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he was so young. So like, you know, AJ had squatted 12 before and AJ had benched nine, but you know, Vlad had squatted 1250 before, but Vlad was a terrible bencher. So, you know, like he's, he's having to figure out how do I recover from all of this? How do I do the volume at the intensity level and, you know, the wear and tear it's kind of like, like Louis in, you know, our conversations, one of the things that would come up a lot was he would say, you know, like it, the horse at the back, the horse at the back of the pack, isn't the one that pulls up limp, you know, meaning like slow athletes and weak athletes don't get, you know, they're not strong enough. They're not explosive enough to create the same injuries that strong and explosive and fast athletes are. Right. Like the track, you know, with the hamstrings all the time. Yeah. If you're fast or if you're strong, you know, like those are, you know, if your output isn't high enough, you're not going to experience the same injuries and you're not going to experience the same kinds of injuries. Right. You know, so Dave was getting into like uncharted territory as far as no one, <laughs> you know, the only other person who would, been where he had been was Donnie Thompson. And even looking back at it, you know, like no one else has come close since, you know, he's still like kind of in his own realm, but so his, you know, the recovery from his workouts, everything had to be, he had to figure out like how to exist and recover when you're, when you have the kinds of outputs that he had and when you had been doing it as long as he had been, cause he started very young, you know, so the, just the wear and tear and yeah, a lot of things with his hip. And I think a lot of like nerve issues and stuff. Um, so then he started reaching out to like Donnie Thompson cause Donnie had figured out how to do all that stuff at 46. Oh, wow. And so if you ask, you know, Donnie hit 3000 at 46 
And when Donnie was 25, Donnie was not good. You know, when Donnie was 35, Donnie was still going way, way up. And he's, you know, he wasn't really that competitive. Donnie was a guy with, in terms of powerlifting, he wasn't a genetic freak. But he figured out how to keep himself together enough that he could keep advancing so far. That's kind of like if Louie. (laughs) Yeah. So Donnie, you know, no one came before him. So he had to figure all that stuff out. And Hoff eventually started going to him and saying, you know, like, how do you keep it all together? And, you know, if you think about like a guy like Louie, Louie had gotten several, you know, severe breaking points. Louie had broken himself and figured out how to put the pieces back together. But you think about like, if Louie, if someone had been able to lay that groundwork ahead of Louie, where Louie never had the severe injuries, then you think about like, well, where could he have gone? And but they even don't have everybody being... after him that he teaches though, right? Because he learned from the mistakes like you were saying earlier. Well, yes, but he also, he also learned from everyone else's mistakes though. Right, right, right. So what I'm saying is, you know, like Donnie could look at Louie Donnie could learn from what Louie did. Dave learned from what Louie did and what Donnie did. But Louie was at this transition point where there wasn't really anyone in the generation before him who had figured any of that science out, you know, to, to prevent the catastrophic injuries early. So if you think like it, basically if someone else had started laying the tracks ahead of Louie where Louie could have benefited from them. I, I have no doubt that he would have been, you know, a guy with a few world records to his name, but right. likewise, if he doesn't have that same, you know, sort of chronic failure, how far does he push? How hard does he push? Is he still the same Louie? Hmm. You know, no one really knows now as stubborn as he is, you could make the case that he would be the same Louie, but that stubbornness comes from, you know, I think a lot of it comes from the perseverance and the perseverance of, of being deprived over and over again. When you get so close, you have to get close enough that you still have hope, but it has to be snatched away from you before you can really like enjoy it and fill that void. Right. Who, but, who did uh, you become closest with at Westside? Um, I became closest probably with Hoff. Um, you know, uh, again, just sort of like when he's talking about, you know, his sort of second act and right around the same time I was finishing the film. And so I felt like, you know, finishing West Side vs. the World and actually getting it out there, uh, pulling off this thing that had taken so long and had looked touch and go for so long and nearly ruined me and stuff. Um, just felt like we were on like a very similar sort of path. And we were the, you know, again, we're basically the same age. Um, so it was easy to relate to him early on. I, you know, I talked to AJ a lot. Um <clears throat> I, I talked to guys like Ethan Pellucci, who's been at Westside for a long time. His dad was at Westside. He's one of like the really early Westside members. Um, but he's not a guy who uh, 
you know, has any sort of acclaim or anything on his own. Um, as far as lifting, he's lifted through a, a, uh, I believe it's a, like a degenerative liver or yeah. kidney. It's some sort of, he is a congenital condition, but, uh, um, I, yeah, I, I, I know a lot of the people there, not on a, not on a super close level. I'm, I'm probably closest now with a lot of people who are, uh, who have left West side in the last, you know, year or so. Um, a lot of the night crew members. Um, and then, uh, Tom Barry, Tom is also basically my age. Um, so I was, I was fairly close to Tom through most of it. And, um, you know, as his sort of role within Westside was increasing and we had a lot of talks about, you know, various decisions that we had made that set us on these, you know, strange journeys, um, making sense of how very small decisions can put you in a very weird place like Westside. Are there any uh, lifters like Donnie or Dave? that come by Westside ever, or are they kind of just focus on their own, you know, cause Dave has a lead FTS obviously. And Donnie has like a million different devices coming out at the same time. So, but yeah. do, like people come by again, or is it kind of not so lovey dovey? So people kind of just stay to themselves. Um, it, it kind of depends. I mean, I don't think Donnie's been up there in a while. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't think that there's any, I don't think that there's any kind of like bad blood or ill will. I think that he's right just you know kind of busy and in the carolinas um in south carolina um back you know through the through the late 90s um up through the mid 2000s when donnie was still more active um i know that he visited west side fairly frequently i think he'd go up there um you know there's a period where he's in you know training videos and stuff he and paul childress um, I know Paul still visits um, fairly Is regularly. Paul the one with the mohawk in the videos? Um, no. There's, you know, there's, there's a lifter that lifts with Laura in mm-hmm. a bunch of the DVDs. I'm trying to think. He, like, super explosive. He's like a 198er, has a mohawk. Oh, like um, five, eight. I always that's, uh, that's probably Phil Harrington. Are you talking about like in say like the jump videos? Yeah, he's in. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in a lot of the jump. But he was. I just remember him being in the same videos when Laura was in there because they were like lifting around the same weight because he was only yeah. like 180, 185 or one ninety eight something like that. But he was like yeah. mad explosive for just being a powerlifter. Like, yeah, that's Phil Harrington. Um, he was. Yeah, he was super explosive. He was like an early. Um, you know, first generation WPO guy who uh, eventually came up and joined Westside. Um, mm-hmm. When you see people do like chain squats and stuff, um, mm-hmm. he and his crew, I want to say that they were in Georgia. Um, really? They pioneered that. Yeah. And then eventually he, he joined Westside. Um, and then he left Westside and he came back and, um, he's sort of constantly in a state of coming and going. Um, but yeah, it just, 
he's he's a guy who is like legendary for his explosion. Yeah, I remember um, he did like an off the knee jump with like one thirty five, like a piece of cake. Didn't even look like he warmed up. And I'm like, like I can do like one twenty five, but like I play basketball. But he's like, he's just a powerlifter. And I'm like, see, that's the strength of power right there because he did it with like ease. And they said, yeah, Don, Louis was like, yeah, he can do like two twenty five, but we're not gonna do that today. <laughs> like, yeah, Geez. yeah, he everything that he does. Um, if you like ever meet him in real life, like everything he does is uh explosive uh, every movement is like darting and uh powerful um and yeah he's not that big he's he's taller than you would expect but he never really? was a guy who like really filled out and got heavy he he was always sort of a a longer skinnier guy um, how, how is that because louis always seems like he's trying to put weight on people was it just because the dude was already great at the size he was yeah, it's a combination of that and um, as stubborn as Louis is, uh, you know, that place, the guys, a lot of times the guys who last for a considerable time there sort of as like almost a self-defense mechanism, they are, you know, they are very stubborn themselves. Hmm. Uh, if you're not, you know, it's the kind of place where like if you can't really stand up for yourself, you're not going to last long. So tell. even if, you know, so like, you know, obedience and, you know, subjugation to Louis and his ideas uh, won't get you very far, you know, at the end of the day, like you need to, it's, you know, iron sharpens iron, even in terms of personality. So you have to be a, a pretty sharp and cutting person yourself. Um, well, that's I got. Oh, that brings me to. I, I didn't have this written down. This one, but does everybody else that are like the top powerlifters there, or just lifters in general, do they actually handle all the training, and then Louis just advises the trainers, or does Louis have his own like clients, or does he just, you know, what I mean, like does he is he just kind of step back completely and just like comes in every once in a while and just says, you know, back 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 back, back. <laughs> you know, like he does the videos of like is he does he actually have people that come just to him for training like how does it how does that work um i think i think you know over it you have to understand that again idea of time you know louis is not uh louis not the same guy today that he was you know even when i started the documentary um he's i think a lot less hands-on now um and you have to like in an ideal world, the lifters would be so intellectually curious that they would really, you know, they would realize like the sort of resource that Louis is and they would really lean on him. And some of the guys do that. Some of the guys just show up and, you know, they're, they're there to show up and just kind of fall in line with what somebody else does. And, you know, if that person is, uh, the one who's having lots of talks with Louie and um, really trying to better their training, uh, then so be it. But a lot of guys who go there, especially, you know, sort of within the last maybe five, six years or so, um, one of, I think, the downfalls of a lot of guys is that they aren't so curious about 
their own training. Um, mm. And at a certain point, I think like if you're not listening to Louie, Louie stops, you know, he, he stops <laughs> giving you, he stops giving you answers if you're not writing them down. Mm. So um, yeah, he, I think what he wants most and what's like sort of most valuable in his opinion uh, and in a lot of people's opinions, it's almost like the, the methods I think are secondary to the atmosphere. And he's really trying to cultivate, you know, a great group and a great atmosphere um, in the way that he understands, um, which isn't, you know, it's not built for everybody. Um, yeah. You know, he like he's he's pretty open with the fact that, you know, like he's he's far more adept at using sort of like negativity to drive people <laughs> than inspiration and, you know, like good vibes and stuff. <laughs> that's not you know, that's not what he does. And with the legacy of success that they have, you know, and again, his age and stuff like you don't ask Bob Knight to be Tony Dungy. Mm. You know, he's, he's Bob Knight, you know, he's, uh, he's going to yell at you and, uh, get in your face and he's going to try and motivate you to say, you know, fuck you, old man, let me show you. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's how he knows how to do things. And that doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for most Um, but it's not a gym for most, it's a gym for the sort of warriors who can stand it. So I think a lot of times, you know, the, the more sort of cerebral lifters who are really into the science, they can't handle the, you know, the atmosphere, you know, so it's a it's a weird thing where like it you have like, to whoa, have yo, like, I'm talking about set you gotta yell at me I'm, I'm doing it yeah well then you run into people who are say you know like say George Halbert George is like a very chill guy and I think George um from you know listening to stories about him and listening to him talk about it and stuff you get the sense that for George he could kind of just disassociate sort of from the there's some guys who take like the drama and stuff of the gym in a, you know, the intensity and everything, they let it get to them and overwhelm them. And they're constantly trying to match it. And then there are other guys who sort of take the approach almost like an animal trainer. You know, if you, if it's your first day working in the crocodile exhibit at the zoo, you're going to be on edge, you know, like you're going to be worried you're going to lose a leg or something. But when you've been there for years, you know, and you get to the point where you can read the animals and realize, oh, yeah, that one over there, he's aggressive towards everything. Like, you know, he's just you know what he's going to do before he does it. Hmm. And you don't take it personal and you just, you know, you don't it's it's so predictable and mundane to you that it, it loses all sort of. Uh, it loses all potency. And I think there are a few people who have gotten through the gym kind of in that way where they realize like, you know, okay, there's a line where maybe someone will actually physically like, you know, something might happen to me, but (laughs) short of that, everything else is just posturing, 
you know, so like Louie's going to, you know, Louie's going to come get in my ear and tell me that Kenny Patterson did something and I can choose to get riled up about that. Or I can just go, yeah, it's probably just Louie, you know, pulling his usual bullshit. And I can let, you know, Louie will keep doing this. It doesn't matter whether I ascend to the challenge or I'm defeated by it. Louie's not going to change how he's responding. So I shouldn't let this, you know, overwhelm me. Right. Are there um, any young and up and coming lifters at Westside people should look out for? Um, it's really hard to like talk about guys that like, you know, people should look out for at Westside because Westside is not, you know, when I was, when I first showed up to Westside, like Laura Phelps had just left, Ah, you know, like, you know, you think about this iconic, like staple figure of Westside and she had just left. And, you know, then I was there for, you know, I'm around the gym for five or six years. And then like Dave Hoff is no longer there. And, you know, you go like, who could, who's more like iconic of the gym than, than Hoff. And he's not there. And I was there just after Coker started coming. And, you know, I remember being there when Louie was like, so excited that Coker was there. And then there was eventually a point where neither person was so excited that Coker was there. And, you know, like, so it's not, you know, it's, it's like the NFL in a lot of ways where it's like, you know, this is not a place where people are supposed to be really long-term. Like if you're there for a long, you know, if you're there for four years, then you have beaten the odds, but you might be six years away from being a great lifter. So it's really hard to pinpoint like, you know, great talent. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of guys who I thought like, oh, he's going to be a superstar. And then six months later, I go back up and I'm like, what happened to that guy? And they're like, oh, he got a job offer somewhere else. And, you know, he's not powerlifting anymore. Or he got it, married or, you know, just powerlifting yeah, is also it's a hard sport to do. Yeah, It's a very monotonous sport. And there's no real, uh, yeah, there's, there's not the, like the glamor that convinces people to stay in it for ever. So it's it's very rare that you find the person who's like made to cut it for years. A lot of the, uh, books that are in all the certifications for Westside, a lot of them that are, you know, like Thomas Kirchner for science and sports training, like they talk about like knowing the temperament of the athlete based on their sex, their age, you know, personality wise, like the coach had adjusted us. And I'm just like, yo, Louie doesn't do any of that, but he reads all these books. And I'm like, like, that's why like people love the system, but I don't think uh, more often than not, people could not work on that gym. And it's like, I come from my everything but like i couldn't handle him yelling at me 24 7 like you know sometimes it's not that i'm trying to chill during my workout but geez you ain't gotta be down my neck all day you know that's like you said like four years you beating the odds i'm like geez that you know four years sound that sounds like a decade at west side <laughs> yeah well and there's a lot of there's a lot of guys like say donnie thompson he would go visit you know i i think he would go visit like once every two or three months kind of go up there, be there for a weekend, 
you know, get a get a speed squat workout in um maybe stay through that monday morning so you get a max effort lower in uh and maybe get you know maybe get speed bench and kind of have a a day to kick back and shoot the shit over the weekend but like he would but i've talked to both donnie and paul childress about this because they're both guys that they were around west side so much you know that they got to wear like west side shirts and this is back before everyone you know was able to just buy west side shirts they got to like rep west side but they were never really members they always stayed you know they would they would they'd call louie and they'd want to talk about the methods and they'd you know they would go back and forth and they would read everything that louie was posting and you know powerlifting usa and both of them talked about how uh, and through the, like the mid two thousands, you think about like both of them were, you know, really kicking the shit out of most of the super heavyweights. You know, they were they were dominant super heavyweight lifters, and uh, Westside didn't have just a big stable of guys who could beat them. They were they were two of the best, and they were training as Louis said, but not with Louis. Hmm. And this led to a couple things. They would listen to Louie and they would really, they were, they were probably two of his like best students because they would listen to everything that Louie said they should do because they assumed that everyone at Westside was doing everything that Louie said they should do. So they were, you know, they're off and they're, you know, Paul's up in Buffalo and Donnie's down in South Carolina and they're, they're competing with Westside lifters. And there, you know, it's that that old like adage of you know like, I you know I coach high schoolers now, and you know everyone when I played, and you know now that I coach, like you tell the kids, you know like so and so across town, you know like are they taking that set off? Are they going home early today? You know like that fear of someone is out there outworking you, hmm. someone is out there doing it better than you. And so you stay that, you know, you stay longer, you show up earlier or you try harder. So they're doing everything based on what Louie is saying. And Louie was saying, you know, a whole lot more than anyone was doing. You know, it's kind of like you, you look at like Louie's prescriptions of like sled work and GPP and stuff and all these extra workouts and realize that like you go to Westside and you realize like a lot of these guys aren't doing this stuff. Right, he always you know, says like, they don't, they don't, they don't want to listen. They won't do the GPP. Right, <laughs> Louis always doing it. So these guys right. are hearing Louis say, you know, like what is optimal, and they're assuming, well, if Louis is putting this out there, like his guys must be doing it. And Louis just he's saying what his guys should be doing, and meanwhile he's training the guys who are eventually going to beat his guys in meets because they're, you know, they're. They're competing with the idea of West Side. And then the guys who were at West Side are, you know, some of them are doing everything that Louis says, usually because they're newer. And, you know, the the newer guys a lot of times they're intellectually the most curious, but they're, you know, sort of the softest. Mm-hmm. And then Louis trying to toughen them up. And then you've got the really stubborn guys who will trickle in, who, you know, Louis will say, you know, he doesn't know nothing. But 
you can't get him to quit. You know, like that kid, dude won't back down. And, you know, like he might be an idiot, but he won't back down. And so he sticks around forever. And it's just a thorn in Louis's side that like he does everything wrong. He won't listen to me, but he also won't leave. And there's there's the part of Louis that like admires his spirit and his toughness and everything. But so a guy like Paul or Donnie, they said, you know, like we had like the best of both worlds because Louis wasn't really responsible for us. We were getting all of his knowledge and we would come and, you know, we'd come in, we'd lift with Chuck or whoever. And, you know, Chuck would try and run us into the ground and we'd try and beat Chuck. And then we'd lick our wounds and go back. And you know what you needed to do to beat a guy like Chuck. But you also didn't have to deal with Louie. You know, you just got the information from him and didn't have to deal with everything else. Um, and like Mark Bartley was another guy in sort of that uh, grouping. Um, these kind of like quasi-satellite members. And it's a lot like, you know, it's, it's a lot in general, like with most sports, the, you know, the strength coaches always have great relationships with the athletes. And then their position coaches get all the static of, you know, like you're not performing or you're, you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> you had two holding penalties last game. You know, you, you had a pass interference, you know, like you're, you're costing me my job. And the strength coach is just like, Hey man, I just make you stronger. If you're bad at your sport, that's your sport. But like, <laughs> I'm not really your coach. Right, right. You know, it's it's more <laughs> of like a grandparent type relationship. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and that's that how nice uncle. Yeah, and that's how like all the athletes who get to visit Westside. That's what a lot of them have. Is it Louis like, you know, come on in, I can make you stronger like that? That's exactly and how if, I was estimating in my own mind. That's exactly how it is. <laughs> yeah. So um, what is your uh, biggest takeaway from Westside? Um, my biggest takeaway, um, my biggest takeaway from Louie, uh, this is a, like a weird one, I think, for most people. Uh, I haven't ever heard anyone else say something like this. But I look at Louie, and this is a guy who, like, life threw him, like, every reason to stop. And not only did he keep going, but he just kept going like harder. And then when you look at like, when you look at Louis's impact on, you know, on the world and on strength and conditioning and on, you know, even to look at his impact now on like this age of social media and stuff. A lot of people, I've seen a lot of people, you know, they make YouTube videos and all the stuff. They try and grab cloud off of Westside's name. Um, off of like criticizing Westside, especially. And they say, you know, oh, it's just a brand. And you go like, you know, like, let's, let's look back at, that's an, that's a really lazy way to look at things because you're only looking at it in the context of the now. But again, factor in time. When Louis, Louis started learning all this stuff, he was just sort of an annoying guy who wanted to talk <laughs> to everybody at the meets. He trained by himself and he just his thirst for personal knowledge was so intense. He was so just intensely passionate about him getting stronger that 
you know, he became this figure. And then people wanted to start, you know, driving across town to train with him. Powerlifting was brand new. Most people didn't know what powerlifting is. Most people still don't know what powerlifting is. Yeah. But he was so passionate that he had a reputation about town. And, you know, again, this is back. There's no Instagram. There's no Twitter. There's, I mean, you had to do a whole lot more work to start showing up on people's radar on the other side of the county. But he was just so intensely passionate that he developed a following of people who sought him out for his knowledge. He became this like walking encyclopedia because he was so passionate. Now at the time, no one's making any money in powerlifting. There's no financial reason why you would be like this in 1976. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy now to go like, you know, a guy like me who say, because of the circumstance of making a movie, I get to talk to all these coaches. I get to talk to all these lifters. I can, you know, leverage that into sort of, you know, making a name for myself. It's not, if you look at it, it's not really built off of, like, it's not built off of my, my lifts. It's not built off of who I've coached. You know, you don't know who I've coached. No one's, no one's fanboying over what I've done. Hmm. The, the appeal to me is, well, I mean, I made a movie. Not many people have done that. But the appeal to me is hmm. mostly a reflection of like who I've gotten to be around. And there's you know, definitely like a financial incentive in there, too. That I've, you know, I, I created work out of my ability to basically network and, and tell other people's stories. There wasn't any financial outlet in 1976 for this stuff. And I don't think anyone saw anything coming. But Louis was so passionate and he was so passionate about not only learning things for himself, but then turning around and telling other people about them. That then he develops a following. And suddenly this guy who's historically had been a loner, very few friends, you know, he's not really... He's not really an extroverted person. He likes, he likes teaching people, but he doesn't really like, you know, just going and like hanging out. He's not a social butterfly, but this fit, just this. You're breaking up a little bit. Okay. Um, A storm's like rolling in. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello, you still there? Yeah, can you hear me? Now I can hear you. Okay. But so this, uh, you know, he's just so passionate that as he continues to just explore that passion, as a result, he creates this, like, model that even the people today that hate him, (laughs) that criticize him all day long, they all use his same model. You know, the idea of you look at like, you know, you look at someone who's been, say, very critical of, of Louis, say, like a Chad Wesley Smith and uh, oh, yeah. Juggernaut. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You look at somebody I've like that. And you, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it again, time is important because if you go back to an old enough video, you see <clears> him <throat> fanboying over Westside. 
and then hmm. <laughs> and then oh, saying it doesn't work, and then saying that it does work under another name. Um, <laughs> how it goes, but uh, another guy who's like my age. Um, but anyways, you see these people now who like do everything that they can to criticize Westside. And you look at like, what are they even trying to be this like American strength school that sells t-shirts and does, you realize they're trying to be Westside. But the difference is when Louis started that there was no profit motive. There wasn't a profit motive because no one was making money. No one had ever made money that way. And if Louis cared about making money, he'd make so much more money. You know, he's not he's not right. like a good businessman. He's, he would have did the conjugate club like 50 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like he wouldn't. Yeah, he wouldn't have just given away everything for so long. No. He wouldn't do things like send me a box full of hundreds <laughs> of dollars of books for free after telling me essentially to go fuck off. You know, like he he didn't want to make a movie, but he was so concerned that maybe I didn't understand (laughs) that it was worth him. You know, it was worth it to him to spend like 40 bucks to ship me hundreds of dollars in his merch. You know, he gives if you visit and he just, you know, like you get embroiled in a conversation with him, he'll hand you just hundreds of dollars of stuff. And, you know, you can try and pay him and he'll say no. You know, like he he's done all this simply because he wanted to see it done, not because he wanted to profit from it. I'm going to go and be like, "Ooh, that plow swing is very nice. I like that. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, you got to I don't know. You got to work hard on that one. <laughs> I have I have heard of plenty of people who have gotten pieces of equipment from him. Wow. Haven't heard about a plyo swing yet, but <laughs> you know, Louis's old equipment is floating around everywhere. Really? Um, really? Yeah. Uh, and people don't, you know, when he gets rid of something, people aren't paying for it. You know, it shows up in somebody's gym with a story. Because yeah, he's always trying to make improvements on the equipment. That's, yeah. Know, I, and the one strength gym I go to, they're they're looking at getting the new, the newer ATP because you know it has like all the pin different settings. They have the one where it's just a set. You know, like that one little thing makes it crazy because now you can do rack pulls with the belt squat attached to your waist at the same time. You know, and so yeah, yeah. he But yeah, suck. so I guess in short, like my takeaway was, you know, like this guy, this you know, this guy took the least likely thing you would ever think of. And you also have to remember like how small powerlifting was as a sport when he was doing all this. I mean, they weren't really doing it in Russia yet. It wasn't an international thing, really. I mean, some Brits did it, but mo- it wasn't really even a national thing. It w- you know, powerlifting was so tiny. It was, you know, only a few percentage of what it is now in terms of the market, in terms of people. But he was just so passionate about something and he pursued it with such gusto that an industry built around him using him as the model. Like it's the weirdest to just sit back and analyze like how did this guy influence this entire 
segment of the economy. All right. It's, it's a weird thing to watch. So then me as like a filmmaker, I go, you know, like a guy trying to get things on TV and stuff. I, I go, you know, like when someone tells me, well, I don't think that would work. You know, I can look back and go like, well, <laughs> if you look at like Louis Simmons life, nothing should work. You know, like it, men are not usually rewarded in life for having an idea on such a fringe topic. Right. You know, so like unproved. Yeah. I know I know a lot of people who have business degrees and you know more sort of like sense than Louis, who had ideas that sound better on paper than Louis. And they still work their nine to five with this idea kind of floating in the back that they'll never go anywhere with by comparison. But Louis was just so passionate about his idea and about improving his ideas that, you know, like he learned so much, it became a commodity. And so that's, that's the most like transformational thing to me is that idea that like, if you're passionate enough and you learn the ins and outs of your thing to such a great degree, you know, like you can not only turn it into a side hustle, you can turn it into something that makes you millions of dollars because maybe if it's, you know, like if it's so fascinating to you, you have to think about like how many people out there would be fascinated by this if it were displayed to them in the right way. What are, and that's uh, sort of the crazy oh, thing that you have to believe in to make movies. What are some of the misconceptions about West Side that aren't true? Um, when people say that the volume's not high enough, that doesn't make any sense. A lot of, <laughs> right. I mean... I know that shit is hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of... It, just the general idea. I haven't... I mean, honestly, since the movie came out, a lot of the misconceptions that really irritated me the most have largely died down. Um, the idea that they're only strong in gear. Yeah. Um, I mean, they've pretty 700 pound raw benchers. They've, you, you take a guy like, you know, you take a guy like Hoff, like he could bench six raw. He could, if you gave him, you know, a fairly short amount of time, he bench six, squat a grand, pull eight. I don't know where that would put him. Um, twenty four hundred, like you know, like, and they, you know, but he'd be doing it at two hundred and eighty five pounds, right. with maybe a chance to cut to two seventy five to do that. Now, I think the list of twenty four hundred lifters at two seventy five is like one or two guys currently. And they specialize in that. And they're both older than Hoff. So you're like, well, give him time. It, he could be where they're at. But then likewise, could you give them time and they put on gear and they do what he does? No. Right. Because um, he's so far ahead of them. And his central nervous system is so far past them. But... uh Yeah, this is like when I was making the movie, um, again, to talk about somebody who 
kind of ragged on West Side. I said, you know, like it would look so foolish for you as a like powerlifting online guru to say something like West Side doesn't work for Raw. And then to watch on Netflix Buddy Morris, who, you know, lives in a mansion off of the money that he's paid to, you know, make NFL athletes stronger and faster to watch a guy like Buddy Morris and then Joey Batson at Clemson and to watch mm-hmm. Stipe uh, in the UFC to watch all these people excel. And, you know, we didn't even get like, you know, I had talked to like Johan Blake's coach and stuff down in Jamaica, but to, to watch all these athletes and their coaches say how, you know, this has helped help to make them more successful. And then to have some dude whose claim to fame is that he was a pretty good lifter in a sport that doesn't have pro athletes. Um, that he was a pretty good lifter for a couple years. And now his big claim to fame is he has a popular YouTube channel. Right. And to have him say, well, it doesn't work for raw, but it does work for the best sprinters in the world and the best UFC <laughs> fighters and the best, it does work like for, common you know, sense. It just gets thrown out the window with these people that have negative opinions of Westside. Like, yeah. have you ever talked to anybody that's a NASM person? Oh my God. <laughs> Don't get me stuck. The frustration. And, and if that person has like a doctorate or anything, they won't, they'll be like, uh, Westside doesn't, uh, they don't do like research and this and that. I'm like, yo, yeah. Okay. Here's hands. I, I, yeah. Here's, here's the thing towards that. Here's the thing towards that. Okay. So a doctorate, how long does it take to get your doctorate? You get a, you get a bachelor's in what? Probably something that, you know, that's bullshit. It's not really informative. So it doesn't really count because everyone has a bachelor's. I have a bachelor's, you know, like they don't fucking mean anything, you know, like, that just means I went somewhere probably between the ages of 18 and 22. I didn't get so hammered <laughs> so often that <laughs> I was unable to show up a few times and pass a few tests. So your bachelor's doesn't really mean anything. Um, not to deride education, but just to say that like having a bachelor's means that you studied theory part-time for a few months in whatever subject you were interested in. Right. You know, you break it down that way and you go like, Oh, that's not really worth much. And then you go, okay, well, masters. Well, that's two more years. Yeah. But that's two more years of, again, theory only again, part time. You're not working through weekends. You're, you know, you're working 12 to 15 hours a week. Oh, geez. You know, like, <laughs> slow down there um 12 to 15 hours a week for maybe three like 12 to six week 16 week sessions that have like little breaks and stuff in them so really they're like you know let's say three 12 so 36 weeks a year for two years well when i make a when i make a movie i mean my movie's been done for two years and I have still every single day talked to either a coach or an elite level lifter almost every single day. I still read about training every single day. 
I've traveled the world talking to coaches who have done research, whose studies are quoted. I've talked to people who have their sport training degrees. We don't have those in the U.S., but in other countries, right. they have sport training degrees. So they're not doing the, you know, they're not getting sidetracked by all the, they aren't taking, you know, three hours in German film to fill a minor. They're, they're studying every day. They're taking their, their degree much more seriously than we do in the U.S. Well, what's some of their required reading? The West Side Book of Methods. Really? Yeah. I've talked to people from Ireland, from Australia, from Russia. They all have to read the West Side Book of Methods. So then you go, okay. Oh, my God. So then you go, okay, (laughs) so. (laughs) Yeah, so Louis is smart enough that if you want to get your doctorate in the best countries in the world for the stuff, you have to read Louis. And then you go for a guy like me. Um, Well, what about if you. Instead of reading a Louis book, you read four different versions of the same Louis book and had 40 hours of recorded conversations with Louis about the differences between each version. Then you went back and you listened through that again. Then you put him into then you put it into practice and you call him up a few months later about it. What's that worth on the educational spectrum? Those are what's called primary sources. I'm not reading a book secondhand. You know, like, I'm not reading your secondhand, you know, T-Nation blog. I'm going straight to the guys who did it, whose, you know, knowledge inspired the, the larger broad-based study. And then you get into what are all the pros and cons of, you know, how studies are conducted where, you know, they don't use elite level athletes usually because that would taint the study in some way, manner. So they want athletes with, you know, they want people with next to no base. Well, right, right. those people are so, so they early. They get some type of result because they just haven't been doing anything. Right. But again, that's, that's discounting the role of time. That's discounting the role of experience, which are both factors that you have to use in the real world. So even then, those like how are those studies worth anything when Westside's doing it with the greatest athletes in the world, oftentimes who are coming to them? Yeah. You know, you're going to tell me that sports. it doesn't work. It doesn't work, at, you know, for some study says that it doesn't work, but it worked for Butch Reynolds and it worked for Michael Thompson or Michael Thomas. I mean, you know, it, it worked for pro bowl NFL players. It worked for UFC heavyweight champions and it worked for them before they were those things when they were just right. Good. Get them there. And then it, it worked for them and they became great. They became legendary. It's also, it's like, well, what were they doing? That was just allowing them to stay the same or be good. Right. It wasn't conjugate. It was, it was the same crap that you guys have been doing. Linear, linear, linear. Right. But we're a nonlinear system. Right. (laughs) But (laughs) so, so there's there's so much of that, though, where they go, oh, you know, I've heard people say, well, well, if Louis would get an education and you go like there's <laughs> like, that he's read more than anybody. 
he rereads the same one. The craziest, right, right. the craziest thing was in the shots where Louis pointing at the pieces of Louis pointing out paragraphs in the book. Right. When I shot that, I came in with a list of concepts and I said, Louis, I need something to cut. I said, I got a section in the book or a section in the movie where we talk about this, but I don't know what to show. So we're going to show you simply pointing at the paragraphs where you read the passages that, that, you know, sparked these ideas in your head. And he goes, okay. And so I say, you know, accommodating resistance. And he goes, Hey Tom, pull out that book, you know, page 87. What's the next one you want? Hey Tom, pull out that book <laughs> over there. Page 124, three quarters of the way down second, or, you know, second sentence. Yo. He, he knew he wasn't looking at the book. He, he told Tom what page, what paragraph, what line for like eight different things oh with, off the top of his head without looking at the book. That's how much he reads these books. And there's people out there who go, well, you know, he can't really understand the, the Russian texts and, you know, he can't understand this and can't understand that. And you go like, he understands it better than the translators. What are you talking about? You know, like mm-hmm. at a certain point, he's an active reader to the highest extent. <laughs> yeah. Like he spends, he spends like four hours a day, every day reading. And you go like, and then again, he's talked to so many of these people firsthand. If, you know, if I go to, if I go to Florida state, I've had, and that's another thing is I've had universities reach out to me to talk to them. And, and, you know, like no one would really consider me to be an authority on anything. That being said, I spend more time, I guarantee you, I know more than a doctoral student does from getting their doctorate. There's, I've never met a person who, who's gotten a doctorate and did the sheer volume of research that I do for any documentary. You know, like you may have paid. Well, no, I still paid more to get my education in the same subject. But I'm like, just because you paid and you got a certificate and there was some sort of regiment to how you learned it doesn't mean that you really learned all that much. Right. You know, I also, graduated like, top of my class within my program exams, at Florida right? State. Yeah, I graduated top of my class within my program at Florida State. It wasn't because I was a great student. It's because when everyone else was done with class, I would go watch YouTube tutorials. I would go download program files and, you know, do, do edits over and over again. It was all self-directed. And then when we took tests, that's how I beat everyone else on the tests. It wasn't just because school was just, you know, it's so inherently valuable. No, school is like the jumping off point. It's the diving board. It doesn't determine whether or not you can swim. It just puts you out over the water. Where do you think that is? Because like book deals with companies or something like what? Why don't they make it more of a hands on, more realistic, like stuff you can Got you back? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's all right. I'll just cut out the last the last one and the, the ending of that previous one, so it's all good. All right. Um yeah, now I have no idea what I was saying. But <laughs> oh we were just talking about how how the degrees they kind of shortchange people because how you were saying that it'd be more expensive to make it more individualized with books or where you get your research from and everything, instead of it just be like, Oh, here's one book that we can cover five classes with. That's basically what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that idea of like, they're trying to fit the education into their delivery system, which is all designed around, um, you know, cost efficiency. Right. And they don't want to have, you know, 30 different delivery systems for 30 different majors, even if that would make the most sense. So, you know, people, people overvalue, uh, you know, the, the meaning of, of those certificates and everything, um, whether it's in a, you know, a formal like collegiate setting or, you know, in terms of getting a certification from, one group or another you know those right. those pieces of paper are ultimately worthless you know and even what you know what jobs and what positions people have i mean i've met i've met plenty of coaches who get paid a lot of money and from my experience don't seem to have a very high understanding of any of this theory hmm. you know they can't bridge the gap between that theory and the practical I've also met a lot of people who have degrees in, you know, my field and they can't operate a camera. You know, most of the, in my field, most of the most talented people dropped out of school early because they were so good at what they were doing. They were already getting offered jobs. And it was like, why go deeper into student debt? Yeah. You know, the, the best trainers. Yeah. The best, the best trainers that I've met, um, and the, the people who, you know, when I want to know something, the people that I call um, are generally like guys who own small private facilities. Right. I'm not calling the guy with the NFL job because the reality is, you know, like most of his job and most of the good NFL coaches will tell you like their jobs are they don't really get to put what they know into play. You know, their jobs are so limited. Right. Um, just cause they're on one of those, you know, 32 teams doesn't mean that they're one of the 32 best people. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and from my experience, like that's, that's pretty much what I've heard from, uh, you know, from West side and from, from other places, you know, the, the kind of places where, they get visitors, you know, who are coaches from all over the world. It's generally the, the small private facility guys or, you know, the high school level guys, because, you know, their, their incentive is, you know, to try and get like the best results that they possibly can. Hmm. Yeah. They don't, uh, most of the time it's because they don't have the, they don't have the, degrees that necessarily would open up the larger you know more profitable jobs to them so instead they're trying to you know fight their way up the food chain by just like well if i have the strongest kids and i have the fastest kids and i get the best results it'll be undeniable it's like uh jared bitney at explosives you know them him i mean 
Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, Jared is <laughs> Jared's one of the people that I'm talking about. Jared yeah, is. Yeah. I just visited uh, his gym uh, a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. you're up in the uh, you're in the the sort of greater Atlanta area, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in a uh, bucket, so like right outside of uh, right right outside of Atlanta. Okay, like right in like right outside the city, and then um, uh, Jared's like thirty. I want to say like thirty something minutes of what, south of where I am. Yeah, he's in Peachtree. <clears throat> yeah. There, yeah. Even though there's a million um, Peachtree roads down here yeah. in Atlanta, you go Peachtree. Oh yeah, but yeah. that could be at North Georgia or South. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Jared. Jared is one of those. I mean, even you go to you know the way that like Jared or uh, Brandon Birds, another person who yeah, yeah. whose stuff I try and steal and who I talk to frequently. Um, you know, it's guys like that because they have the freedom to experiment mm-hmm. and they also have the freedom of their own schedule that they can put in the time to, you know, they can talk to whoever they want to talk to without any kind of, you know, pressure or static from above. Yeah. 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 They can try, you know, Jared's got like six year olds maxing on box squats <laughs> day one. Like, <laughs> And I'm so excited to one day do that with my child. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I remember the first time I talked to him about that, and he was just like, "What? They're you know they're weak." And again, it was like Louis said, you know, like the the land, you know, the run with the lane. the last horse. <laughs> well, the last horse doesn't pull up lame. Right. You know, so like, well, if the kid is weak, you know, like, how is he going to hurt himself? <laughs> He's too weak, you know, like, so the Jared's like, you know, that's an advantage, you know, take advantage of that opportunity. When his outputs are so low, he's like, I can train it, you know, I can max him in the morning, max him in the afternoon, and he'll have gotten stronger. <laughs> it's like, I can't do that with a 14 year old. <laughs> Uh, where do you, where do you coach now? What is your role and how have you applied conjugate conjugate to your athletes training? Um, I coach now at a a school called Leon high school. Um, it's actually where I went when I was a kid. Hmm. Um, it's in Tallahassee and over the last like two decades, it hasn't been a very good team. Hmm. Um, it's sort of high watermark was while I was there, we went eight and three in my junior and senior year um but we went one and nine the year before and uh the team so i just started working with them in january uh as a strength coach um and it was a situation where their coaches the the head coach uh was refreshingly you know said to me you know i'm not my background is not in weight training my background is in football um he was a Mm -hmm. collegiate quarterback and um a a really good one at that but he said you know like i know football i'm not gonna pretend like i know weights that's a rare person to say that yeah (laughs) yeah and i looked at him and said like well that's refreshing because from looking at your players it's obvious that you don't know weights um uh, I had gone to one of their games and I wrote a big long post on social media saying, you know, basically like uh, when you're working with young kids, 
you know, if you look at if you look at kids and you look at means and methods like stocks, if you can just shift how you look at things, it it distills things for you. It makes them very clear. You know that if you ha- you know you can't control whether or not you get uh, a good quarterback, right? On the high school level, you know <clears throat> these days good quarterbacks they are good quarterbacks by the time they're in middle school. So if you don't get them until they're 14, then you don't really have a lot of control over, am I going to get, you know, a kid who's, you know, like a three-star or higher level quarterback. So if you have a scheme that's predicated on having very mature quarterback play, you're going to go through a lot of rough years. So, you know, that's a stock that could give you very high yields, but is very volatile. You know, you're, probably not going to put all your savings in that strength on the other hand gives you huge predictable yields and you can get them across your starters across your bench warmers across your jv and if you take a kid who has no real football sense but you take him from a 200 pound squat or a 135 pound squat and you take him up to a 405 squat you have made him a better football player without a shadow of a doubt at the high school level. Right. If you can do that across, you know, 90 kids, <clears throat> you know, then you've, you've severely upgraded the, the floor of your football season, you know, so you can manufacture a, a, a reasonable semblance of, of talent through the weight room. Yeah. Now, sure, maybe those kids won't have, you know, maybe you won't have a kid who is a real, like, true high four-star, you know, like, a real, maybe you don't have a power five skill player on your roster. But you can line up and, you know, be competitive and win eight games a year just by having players who top to bottom have you know, developed over three years in a predictable fashion. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, I, I made a post kind of saying that. And then they, somebody called me up and said, Hey, I talked to the coach at our old high school. Would you talk to him? And that was basically what I told him. And he said, you know, like, well, I don't know how any of that stuff works, but we've definitely been lacking in that department. And if you think that you can, you know, can fix it up, then you can do pretty much whatever the hell you want to do. And I said, okay, well, that means that I want to max these kids out twice a week. <laughs> he, he said, well, what does that mean? I said, I want to see how much weight they can lift on an absolute scale. So I want them to lift until they fail. And he goes, uh, yeah, sure. As long as you know how to do it. <laughs> and I said, all right. You know, <laughs> so like, no one's going to get scared. When I put, you know, a 13 year old kid on a box and say, we're going to failure. And he said, uh, I, I guess and I said, you know, like, do you have strong kids? And he said, well, we got a kid who squats, you know, 500. And I said, does he really squat 500? Like to what kind of depth? And he's like, I don't know what you mean. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to assume he does. And so I tested him and no, he squatted 385. Um, and uh, but if you let him do a quarter squat, yeah, he 
blast a couple reps with 500. <laughs> um, but I, you know, and I said like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do some things for you then across a broad number of players that I don't think you've seen before. And he was just like, great, whatever. And he introduced me to the kid and um, the kids, again, all I know is conjugate. So I had just started really talking to like Jared and, and Brandon Bird um, a good bit, you know, and probably the year before this. And I was fascinated by, you know, I knew how to get people stronger. And through doing the movie, I went from, you know, having not trained for 10 years, I went from benching about 205 to benching 425. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I got, I mean, I got kind of strong. I, like I said, like, you know, just studying is, you know, knowing the theory is, is nothing. You got to be able to put it into practice. So for a few years, all I really had was myself and a couple, you know, older people who trained with me. And I had a, an IFBB pro bodybuilder who, who trained with me for a, a couple months. And in about six weeks, you know, he put 60, 70 pounds on his bench and, put 120 pounds on his squat and 150 pounds on his deadlift. Um, and he was, he was, uh, just shy of 40 at the time. Um, so yeah, so, you know, and so I knew like, okay, I know that if everyone who trained with me, you know, basically eventually got as strong as me and stronger than me. So I was like, so I know, I know how to do this stuff. And again, I've had the privilege of, you know, when I ask a question of, you know, how do you, how do you do this? Or, or what am I doing wrong? I'm lucky in that the people I'm able to ask are oftentimes the guy who came up with the method. So I knew that I could do it on a one-on-one level. And then they said, you know, okay, well, it's the off season. It was January. And they said, we usually have like a dozen kids who show up um, to work room was small and didn't have a lot of resources and stuff so it's basically they had six bars and six stations that they could squat and bench at um there were three like double-sided racks Mm. so you you couldn't hook up any accommodating resistance Um, you know it was basically all all the weights were in this small like classroom right and then they had a turf room which when i went there they had the biggest weight room in the city so i was very sad to see what had happened uh, but they had moved away into this tiny little classroom Jeez. and then had replaced the weight room with turf, but the turf, they didn't maintain it. So you couldn't really like, <laughs> there were huge beams in it that would like catch your ankle for sure. So, <laughs> Jeez. so I moved a bunch of sleds into there and I brought out a jump mat and I uh, made some Google, you know, spreadsheets and stuff. I, I'm a big fan of tracking data. And, uh, so I had a just jump mat and the kids love jumping. And the first day we had two kids who could jump 30 inches. And the first, you know, by the end of the first two weeks, we had four kids, uh, who could jump 30 inches. One of them, um, within a couple of weeks jumped 40. Wow. Um, he, I mean, he came in jumping 37, so it wasn't, uh, so you unlocked, we put bit, like just a little good stressor to the, to the body that was missing already right? yeah yeah and he he had jumped 40 before and then he had been working with some other trainer across town and uh so some he was cone saying, action, some speed and some ladder 
Oh, yeah, a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard stuff. Jared go on his rants about that? Oh my god! Oh, I've heard Jared. <laughs> I've heard Lee Morris. I got shirts now. They burn this, burn the agility ladders. Oh, I gotta get that. Where did you order that from? <laughs> I designed it, so I'll you have those out. I, I, yeah. I got to get one of those. I wear them often, and all of the coaches, <laughs> the other coaches still like to use that stuff. And just like, you know, tell them, like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to try not to be a dick about this, but I hate seeing that thing come out. And it's a total waste of time. You got, you know, if you got a minute, I'll tell you why. And they're like, oh, well, we do it for this and for that. And I go, but there's a better way to do this and that. Yep. And so what I'm telling you is. Like dramatically. Of, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, anytime you bring that ladder out, instead, I want you to line the kids up and work on a passing tree. Or line the kids up and have them work on, you know, like taking their drop and flipping their hips or do anything. We'll just take the kids out and work on their stance for 15 minutes. Like that's all going to benefit them far more. I said, I used to work at NFL network. And one of my jobs at NFL network was I helped cut the scouting uh, tapes for the combine or not for the combine for the draft. So I cut like over two years, I cut about 400 scouting profiles. And I said, we never, we never layered in, you know, we never had, you know, Mike Mayock, now the the GM for the Raiders, 400 players. I never once heard him say, gosh, really wish he could, you know, show faster feet on those speed ladders. <laughs> that never happened. I said, you know what happened? They say, you know, he really needs to work on his fundamentals. He really needs to work on coming out of his stance. He really needs to work on his assignments. I'm like, so every time you feel like, huh, I'm getting that itch. I want to, I want to break the speed ladder. He said, I got the speed ladder. <laughs> yeah. I, go teach them something about something about their thing about their position. Go teach them, go line them all up and have a talk with them about, Hey guys, when you see a guard line up like this and it's this kind of situation, He's about to trap, you know, he's about to pull. See that when this guard takes this really weird stance and this, this wide split, he's trying to set you up to get ear hold by the, the pulling guard or pulling tackle on the other side. Teach them something like that. Don't waste their time. The and don't the waste. Do. <laughs> yeah. Don't, I said, you know, or line them up, teach them the electric slide, man. Teach them how to Dougie. <laughs> teach, them, teach them something that might impress somebody at a wedding down the line. <laughs> it's going to make them just as fast as that thing isn't. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. So yeah, I'm, Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. I got eight minutes left. I got to go on a conference call with my job. I just got two last questions oh, no for problem. you if we can do it. We've already got two hours, so we, we did yeah. damn good. Um, first one, what are some things that Louie does with athletes that you don't? Because I like hearing that about from different people too because I know some people do stuff a little bit different. Oh, um, things that Louie does with athletes. Um, <clears throat> Louie Louis has them generally, from what I've seen, squat to a higher box. Mm -hmm. Um and use a wider stance generally. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I know kind of why he does. He also gets them into briefs and he works with right. fewer athletes. If I had mm-hmm. enough, if I had a, a, you know, like the ratio of coaches to athletes, then I would probably have them squat more like Louie, but I take more of an almost a Bidney approach, a little narrower because they're raw and they don't have gear. So mm-hmm. a little narrower to pr- both preserve their hips and to go a little deeper. Um, and it seems to, to work well. Although if I got an athlete in a one-on-one situation, I would have them widen out, especially for speed squats. And that's also how I do my squats is when I max and do speed squats, I have two different stances. Right. But that's, another, that's another thing. Um, what else? Uh, he does a lot of box jumps. I use a jump mat. Um, so you use a lot I, of like dumbbell jump standing on the jump mat. You like doing that. Yeah. Yeah. For maxing um, or for multiple sets or both. Um, I care most about a max for time and expediency sake. I'll have them do uh, a few sets to warm up jumping onto a box because, you know, we're again, I'm dealing with like in the mornings and our morning workouts, you know, maybe 60 kids. And in our evening workouts, maybe 30 kids. So about 90 kids a day. And uh, they've only got so long, you know, we got one jump mat. So breaking them up into groups of 15 to 20, we've only got them for so long there. So we kind of get the warm-up jumps done on a box so that then we can get maybe five to 10 measured jumps, usually starting off with a dumbbell and and going to an unweighted and those can be seated. Um, those can be, you know, a short depth jump. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, a short depth jump. Usually, you know, I have them go off of like, uh, either six inches or 12 inches. Um, so it's not a, you know, not a big crazy depth jump, just trying to get another variation of the jump. Do you do any off the knee? Um, I really like those like for myself. Mm. Um, but we have a number of players who can't, I'm trying to get the team where everyone, uh, we just have some players who are, who are really heavy and are not in very, so I'm hoping they'll get frustrated from not doing well nearly as much as they like guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm hoping that after, you know, like one full sort of off-season or one full, you know, if we can have a full off-season, but in one, you know, after sort of one year cycle, I'm I'm hoping that the few kids who can't do that will be able to. Right. And then we, you know, have everyone do it and do them both weighted, uh, do them while cleaning, while holding the weight, you know, do them into back squats, do them into uh, – you know, weighted and unweighted up onto something. Do you, you know, do you max them kind of twice a week in the jumps or just one day maxing out the jumps? Twice. twice. I have them max twice a week in the jumps and then on their, uh, both on their lower body days. Mm. Uh, most kids are of the opinion that they want to do their, uh, their main <clears throat> lifting jump. Mm. Um, especially on their max effort day on their speed squat day. It, uh, it doesn't really seem to matter, but on their max effort day, they all want to have maxed 
before they jump. Is and it again, like because of the contrast the, thing? Yeah. If they know that, yeah. do they know it's because of the contrast? Like they feel light, so then they can jump higher? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they know that. Um, I also have them do a lot of isometric pulls. Okay. Um, we just started that, well, two weeks before we, we just got shut down this past week because it's Florida and COVID right. and our state's on fire. Um, but uh, when, immediately when we started doing the isometric pulls and we would do them as a warm up, uh, I know that's not how everyone does it, but we were right. just doing three sets of five seconds. I was just experimenting because that was one thing I'd always heard Louis talk about isometrics, right. but I hadn't seen him do them with any athlete. <laughs> right, right. I don't, he talks about, but I'm like, I'm trying to find it in the text somewhere hidden. I'm like, uh, yeah. Oh, how do I it, implement this? Well, and again, and I got all this time to actually watch them and I wow. saw like maybe one person do them. At wow. And, but then I talked to all these other coaches and a lot of them are, you know, coaches like in the <laughs> conjugate club and stuff. Hmm. They're doing them all the time. And I'm like, wait, so how are y'all? And they, so they all had these different systems. And so I started off pretty, pretty light. We did three sets of five seconds in one position and I would change the position every day. Um, and then week two, we did three sets of seven seconds week one and week two. I saw a lot more kids were suddenly busting out like two inch PRs. Hmm. It wasn't every kid, but again, when you have 90 kids, you know, when you go from like, Oh, 30 kids hit a PR today mm-hmm. to, you know, and the PRs for the most part are like 0. 0.2, 0. 0.4. And then all of a sudden you see like, holy shit, that kid went up three and a half inches today. Wow. And that, you know, we had one week where one kid went up five inches, another kid went up three and a half, and another kid went up 3.6. And you'll do this before the jumps sometimes. Yeah, we do them like at the top of the workout. Okay. And then, you know, so that's like the first thing that they would do if they're at the weightlifting station. Mm. So now I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out a way to set it up so that at the jump station, I can have them do isometrics there too. And I also, I just bought some crane scales, which should be getting here tomorrow. They're supposed to be here tonight, but crane scales that measure up to 1,102 pounds. So I'm going to rig those up uh, for isometric pulls so that then we can get actual data on how hard is the kid pulling. And then they can try and break those records. Wow. Because that's okay. the, the kids who pull really hard and are shaking and you can like see like, oh, shit, that kid's going to explode. Those kids are doing well. Some the kids of them are who are getting through. Who aren't, yeah, they, they're like they're looking around confused and I'm like, pull, pull as hard as you can. And I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't look like you're pulling any like you're you don't look like the blood flow increased one bit like. <laughs> Like you look like you're gonna drop the bar any second. Like you're barely awake. If you, if you don't um, have a jump mat, do you? What would you recommend? Because I like we don't have a jump mat in my gym. So would you just stick to mm-hmm. box jumps, or would you still have them like standing dumbbell jumps and just kind of you know film it and see if they're getting higher? Like how do you, how would you do it if you don't? Have um, a jump mat? I would do I would do box jumps, go higher, but not everyone has adjustable boxes, right? So then you do, you know, dumbbell jumps and trying to increase the dumbbells, weighted knees to feet, um, adding, you know, ankle, add anything that you can quantify. Right. Um, you know, then you get into, I've talked to a few people who talk about, you know, like how much can they, you know, 
how much weight is enough or too much. Again, you look at Jared Bidney, who's who gets, you know, just like consistently freakish results. Right. He uses the heaviest weights that I see of anyone <laughs> on dumbbell jumps. <laughs> and then I've talked to other people who are like, yeah, but you know, like when they land, it goes to shit, you know, for when I try and use those weights and I'm like, uh, sometimes it looks like that with Jared, but most of the time it just looks like he's telling them like, you're going to jump with 80 pounds and right. you're going to do it or you're not like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's not really that much. Um, but yeah, I'd also say just get it, get a jump mat. Like they're, they're so much fun. So we went from the, from having those four kids month one who could jump 30. Um, we now have, uh, two of those kids transferred. So my two best jumpers who uh-huh. went from 33 to 36 and from 37 to 40, both left the program during the initial shutdown. Um, but instead now minus those two out of, you know, the initial four, now we have something like 21 kids over 30. Oh, Wow. And yeah, our top 10 average jump is now like 33.6 and our top 50 average jump is 29.6. So like, that's not bad. These kids are fucking jumping. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. And you did it with I got multiple guys, so kids who have gone up over eight there. inches. Oh yeah. Yeah. We got, um, well, we just had our first kid who's like 250 he was one of the kids who within one week went from 29.5 to 33.6 when we started doing the, uh, the isometrics. And then how's the um, speed? Like, do you but, guys have the, uh, the electric, what is that thing called? The one that is like the pure way to test forties and stuff. Uh, the laser. Yeah. System, I've got, whatever. yeah. Yeah. I've got two laser systems. Um, the really shameful thing is because of how the summer is gone, they have a field station. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get to use the field station that often. Uh, and also there's only one of me. So there's, you know, these 60 kids are going. <laughs> right. And if I'm in one spot, I can kind of monitor two different rooms. And we're not allowed to have more than 20 kids in each room because oh, of COVID. Geez. So. I don't, I don't really get to get a lot of data on their running um, and enough to like track really how they're improving. I would like to, um, but so mostly I'm just looking at like their jumps are going up. So the rate of force development's going up and their maxes are going up. So, so yeah, they're running between those two things. (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're running faster. Some of them run weird and awkward. Um, but in a short area, especially, like, their initial burst is going way up. Well, I mean, that's most of the um, sport anyway, so that's what really counts, right? Yeah. Except for, I guess, the um, wide receiver, you know. Yeah. Um, or the defense. So, I would like... I, I would like to... I would like to have them run more often, in part just to kind of get over... You know, when they see the lasers come out, I think a <laughs> lot of them kind of freak out yeah, about it. Right. Um, and especially cause the lasers, you know, like their times are going to be, yeah. you know, kids coming in. I run a four five and then he runs a four, seven, eight <laughs> and he's down about it. And I'm like, dude, there's only a few of you running in the four sevens. Like yeah. this is a great starting point. Right. Right. Um, 
we have one kid who's a you know a national like an AAU national champion um, sprinter and jumper, and he runs um, a four four electric, um, and you know like <laughs> all these kids are talking about like you know, and even the coaches will talk about like guys who run four threes and stuff, and I'm like y'all have never actually seen that. <laughs> like you think you have because you've been hand timing everyone, but that's just how degraded your central nervous system is. You're missing it. Like these kids are not that fast. <laughs> um, the laser is not lying to you. I'm like, I have two sets of them and they'll spit out the exact same time. That's the funniest thing. Jared talks um, about that. Parents or, or kids get mad. If like, you're, that's lying. It's like, yo, what are you talking about? You're looking at, you can't look at a stopwatch and look at the laser and you can just tell. Obviously, one is more accurate because there's a human holding that thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's another thing. You talk about like things you can measure, mm-hmm. broad jumps. Right. Okay, there you go. Um, I also have some broad jump mats, again, because we have so many kids um, that it really speeds up the process of, of measuring them. Right. And then um, on their upper body days... <clears throat> Uh, I have them do uh, the six pound power ball mm-hmm. toss like from their knees, the power ball throw, okay. um, which like they do for the Nike opening and a couple other combines. It's it's replaced the bench press because it's they've figured out like, hey, there's a lot less liability to throwing this medicine. ball. <laughs> um, but so like at the opening, the average power ball toss at the opening is 27 foot four. Uh, we have, I think, 47 kids now over 30 feet. Ah, nice. On that, with a, with I think four kids over 40 feet, uh, and part of that is because they're comfortable after doing the movement, you know, four or five times. But uh, also, that's just another, you know, it's another just thing that you can measure and that gets them moving quickly and explosively and. Um, I think I have an understanding now of, of that movement and how, you know, they're really having to time the, the popping of their hips and everything. It's not, it's not the best movement, but it's something that they use in combines. Yeah, you gotta it's get something that the kids like. Yeah. And then it's something that, again, they can get competitive about. And I post their numbers as well. Ah. So they all, when I post the numbers, those they all run over to the door and they all look. On your Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Um, last question, because I actually gotta go. What? What are right. your uh, future <laughs> plans? Coaching, filming, own on gym, any mixture of both? You kind of broke up oh, there. I heard I, I said, filming journey. Uh, I said, what are your future plans? Coaching, filming, owning your own gym. Um. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Um. I, well, I'll be coaching, hopefully I'll be coaching for several years at least. Um, I really enjoy the coaching. It's a lot more fun than the filming. Um, I wish that like, it was quite as easy to like get paid to do it in this sort of setting that I'm doing it in, you know, like across, like to train a whole team and not have the coaches, you know, to be in a situation where like, I'm not fighting with a head coach trying to take a kid away. Right. Um, so I wish that like, there was a way to, you know, make that kind of, you know, like make the same money. Cause then I wouldn't do the film stuff at all. <laughs> um, 
you already coaching did a great is like one, that you know, much fun. That you just leave on the high note. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm already, I'm already, uh, I've already shot probably like, you know, more than half of a film um, on uh, some of the lifters going through the WPO. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. So I'll hopefully finish up filming that. I was supposed to be finishing that like right now. Uh, and then COVID yeah, happened. And <laughs> yeah, so I've got some, some travel plans that are really weird and I had to restructure some things and stuff. Um, but uh, hopefully the world gets back to normal and I can finish that up and it'll hopefully be a sort of, it's not really a sequel, but there are some familiar faces and it uh, again, dealing with not just powerlifting, but with <clears throat> multiply lifters um, cause I think that it's really fascinating again, how like they kind of deal with like the hardest, uh, version of the sport and the most like pain. And, you know, it's the, it's, it's the hardest thing to master and it has the smallest sort of attached glory. Right. You know, um, we now live in an age where like some power lifters have a million followers and <laughs> like Larry, some power lifters are. Dan Green. Yeah. You know, like there's we've yeah, we see now this like generation of powerlifters who are also basically Instagram models. Right, right. And then you look at geared powerlifters and like <laughs> everybody's no, fat. they're it, <laughs> well not exactly that they're fat, well, not but they fat, aren't lean. But, you know, yeah, and they're they, yeah. Yeah, they're not shredded. They're they're you know, they're far more intense personalities, they're better <laughs> stories. Yeah. They're like, they're so much to me, at least they're so much more fascinating people. And oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's largely because like, they're not, there's no sun, there's no like, Oh, I'm doing this to become a celebrity. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm doing this. Cause if I weren't doing this, I might kill people. I don't know. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so like, every time I'm like, I want to go visit West Ham, I'm like, I'm just going to like nod my head. Hey, how you, how you doing? How you doing? Just keep it moving. <laughs> yeah. No, they're, 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 they're shockingly nice at West side, especially now really? the sort of really scary generation isn't there. <laughs> and if they, you know, like if you're not a power lifter, you know, if you're an athlete or you're a coach again, like they're not really going to be competitive with right, you. So right. they're, they'll be, you know, they'll be nice. Right. Like if anything, maybe you'll give them a t-shirt or something like, <laughs> you know, they never know. Um, it's kind of like alligators at like Gatorland, you know, like they see you, they come over cause they think, you know, maybe you have a hot dog or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, if you don't have a hot dog, then that <laughs> is a trouble, problem. I guess. <laughs> um, uh, so just yeah. tell everybody where they can find you and where to watch the movie and everything. Um, you can watch West Side vs. the World right now on Amazon Prime. We moved over to Amazon Prime a, a, like a month ago, maybe. That's from what Netflix. I was looking for. And it and that, yeah, there you go. Went over there. Yeah, and that's not a – I have no real, like, say in any of that. They just tell me, like, hey, this is who, like, offered the most money for the next however many months. Ah. And then then they tell me, like, you know, so this is what we're doing here's who's signing your check in six months when, or if you get one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's on Amazon prime to stream. If you don't have Amazon prime, you can still uh, watch it on YouTube, Vimeo. And these are paid rentals. 
Uh, if someone has bootlegged it on YouTube, please don't support. <laughs> I bought mine. On iTunes. I still have I a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still on iTunes. Um, if you want a hard copy, uh, we've got some cool Blu-rays. I have one and it is unopened. I bought one and I gave it to Louie and I assume that one is also unopened. <laughs> um, but those are on Amazon. I need to look at myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. Those are on Amazon. And um you can get those through amazon.com if you're in Canada or something. So not .ca or .whatever. You have to order them from the U.S. version of Amazon. Um, if you are international and you can't find it anywhere, Vimeo is the place to go. And uh, there might be some countries that still have it on Netflix. Again, no one tells me anything. Uh, I just get a report that is like three months behind that says here's where it is. Um, so yeah, and you can follow me on, uh, Instagram and Twitter at Westside film, uh, facebook.com slash Westside film, I think. Um, and other than that, um, my only other social media is for, if you like actually know me as a person and I don't give that one out. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I post a lot of stuff now about training high school athletes because that's the most fun um stuff to post and because mostly now i use social media to interact with my players so yeah man this is this is this is awesome the longest one yet so you know that's that that it was good two hours 20 I feel, i'm feeling like joe rogan <laughs> i'm not a i have I'm the not i have the record for like uh i have the record for like every podcast i've been on Oh, really? um, for the longest podcast. <laughs> yeah. I had one where I was on for almost five hours. Really? So really? Well, I, yeah. I, I always tell people cause I try to get really interesting people on. Um, like I try to get a strength coach one week and then like a basketball related person the next. So I always tell everybody, uh-huh. like, I want to do six months to a year checking. Like, so like have it where it's like a, from this exact date, come back in and like see what the other person is doing, you know? So uh, I really, right. I really loved having. I'm you down on. anytime, uh, it, it, and it's a, such a such a great film. I mean, for me, my favorite part was uh, with Ed Cohen how he was talking about Louis and like how emotional it was, and how he was talking about like how his sponsors dropped him. And you know, everybody has that story. It's like the friends that drop you, and they're not there for you. And like Louis, who's yeah, Eddie wasn't even like training in his gym, and he just sends him all his stuff and's like right. contact. I mean, I, that was like just such a great moment to have captured, especially from. You know, it's like always like that, especially you, you know how tough these guys are and to see them get oh, emotional, yeah. like the same thing with Dave. It's like, you know, especially because some dudes are like, yeah, I don't cry. It's like, you, you know what? I don't think you're tougher than these dudes, you know, but like this, this oh, matters yeah. so much in their life. Well, like that's that become a family. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, I'm really good at making people cry <laughs> in interviews. I, I straight up told Ed I was going to make him cry. He thought I was joking. <laughs> And then I did it and I knew as I was, I was just like, okay, I'm going to set him up. I'm going to set him up. I'm going to set him up. Bam. And, uh, I'm so good at that. Uh, that's a science, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that whole scene, like to, to be real short, that whole scene, why he cries there. And like the, the beautiful significance to me is because everyone did really think that he was just like done, that he was left for dead. Right. But again, you think about Louie had been through so much and it meant so much to Louie 
that Ed was Ed was the best talent in the world at the time. And it meant so much for Louie to do what he could as someone who had been through that level of injury and worse and had come back. No one else really was in that kind of position where they had come back from something so devastating, but Louie had, and that's, you know, like it, it was that belief that was like so important for Louie to pass on and why Ed cries there is because he, he realizes that beauty and that like, it meant so much for Louie to, to, you know, like help him. And it meant so much to Ed that someone out there did believe in it. Hmm. That's also a big part of how you make people cry is you <laughs> tap into getting them to remember the people who did believe in them. You amp them up first with who, <laughs> you know, who they did it in spite of that only gets you so far. And then once you've got them amped up because, Oh yeah, so-and-so was talking shit and stuff. Then you come back to a touchstone that you know will make them think about who was there for them when they were down, who was the believer behind all the haters. And that's what will make them cry. That's also what I tell all the kids as far as like when you need motivation. And that's what motivates me is I get up in the morning, you know, like because of the haters. And then I stay working hard because of those people who, you know, truly did believe in me. There's not a lot of them. But when you remember those people, you cannot let them down. Right. If you can stay cognizant of those people, you absolutely cannot let them down. That's the long term motivation. That's how, yeah. So that's how you get through the the long grind. But uh, yeah, man, this was fun. Anytime you want to, you want to talk, <laughs> recorded or otherwise, I'm around. Oh well, uh, I'm gonna definitely pick your brain because I just started as the head strength coach at this private basketball facility and literally like the person's just letting me pick out my, whatever the equipment I want. So like, we just got the rack bench. We're going to get a, a hyper, you know, and I'm working with mostly basketball kids. So, you know, they literally do do any weights and it's like, so I'm trying to grow it and just trying to pick the brain of, you know, people that are already doing it, you know? So definitely, definitely yeah. I'll, 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 I'll shoot you a text, you know? So, but definitely, I, I appreciate you. Man, really, really. All right. <laughs> no problem. Go get to this meeting yeah, that know. I'm making you late for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, this is business. This is business too. And this is gonna help grow the business uh, grow the business as I just told you. So yeah. Uh there you yeah. go. Thank you, man. All right. All right, man. All right. No problem. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night. There you have it. That concludes episode nine of the Get Clean Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Michael, one of the most genuine and insightful people I've met, and it was such a pleasure having him on. I hope you all are excited for later down the road when I definitely will be having him on again, picking his brain, because he uh, he got to pick some of the greatest people in the world when it comes to strength conditioning brain, so definitely got to see that. And obviously, he's one of those uh, go-getters, you know? Got an amazing documentary underneath his belt on top of the Forks Over Knife documentary underneath his belt at such a young age. So remember, y'all, stay tuned for next week. I will have another dope person on again. It's starting to trend upward and upward, you know, so stay tuned. And remember, 
Stay clean. Peace.